Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guest today is the visual artist, Julia Wiest. Our conversation today is being recorded by Zoom. Julia Wiest is a visual artist who explores how the process of record keeping reveals crucial social truths around shared systems of knowledge and power. Her work is in the permanent collection of the City of New York, the Museum of Modern Art, the Brooklyn Museum, and the MIT List Visual Arts Center, among other collections. Wiest's public artworks include Public Record in 2020, New York City, View Through in 2017 in Miami, and Reach in 2015 in Queens. Her work has recently been exhibited at the Queens Museum, New York, the Hongar Museum, Taiwan, the Luminary in St. Louis, the Shed, New York, NGBK in Berlin, the Kunstinstitut Melli in Rotterdam, the Guangzhou Biennale, and many other venues. She is the recipient of a Camargo Foundation Fellowship, a Jerome Foundation Fellowship, the Net-Based Audience Prize from Haus der Elektronischen Kunst Basel, and grants from the New York State Council on the Arts and the NYC Department of Cultural Affairs. In 2019, she was named Public Artist in Residence for New York City's Department of Records and Information Services. Julia, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Just off air, I said that I was fascinated by this idea of record keeping being a a focus of your uh, artistic practice. And I also confess that it perhaps seemed a little nerdy, as it were. And I wanted to ask how you think about the process of record keeping and what it is that draws you to it. Yeah, I mean, I think to a certain extent, all art is record keeping. So a painter is making a record, a writer, a musician. I mean, and obviously in some of these contexts, we do call them records, like in the in the performing arts or the musical um, discipline. But I think... When I say that, what I mean is a bit broader. I'm really interested in how um, social groups and communities in a more macro sense record their lived experience, possibly because it's how I understand people who aren't making art, but who are capturing something about um, how they see the world or what they think is important for future generations to understand. So in a really broad sense, I think it's actually quite a universal interest that many people have, but it's something that I've articulated um, because I've searched for this or I followed this interest into very bureaucratic spaces, um, municipal spaces, libraries, archives. um, And I think this is somewhat unique for a visual artist uh, because some could see it as very dry and lacking in creativity, or maybe in some contexts, even stifling creativity, things like bureaucratic systems. But I don't see it that way. And so I think that's been really the the genesis of my interest. Well, you have a master's, I think, in library science. That's right. So information systems as a whole, I think, are fairly central to your background. 
And so how did you find your way into information, uh, sort of information science, as it were? And then what was the inflection point that perhaps took you into an artistic reflection on those realms? Yeah, it's interesting. I would say I started from an artistic place and then I explored library and information science and then sort of returned to an artistic space. So what led me down that path was I was um, an undergraduate student in art school at the Cooper Union, which is in New York City. And all of the artwork I was making was about libraries. And so as I was graduating and sort of ready to start the next chapter in my life, I realized that, you know, like so many artists, I was going to need to have a job because at, um, you know, 22 years old or however old I was, um, I was not able to support myself right out of school on my art practice. And I thought, well, here's this dual opportunity. If I, if I pursue this other path of library and information science, one, I could become a expert in my subject in addition to my craft, which I had just spent time in college, you know, focusing on the process of art making. Um, and then also I figured I could get a job in a library, which would be the ideal place for me to spend, um, you know, my nine to five, uh, so to speak, while I was making artwork and so that I could pay the rent while I was learning and exploring and supporting other strangers who would come uh, into a library seeking their own intellectual pursuits and learning about what they were interested in. It just seemed like such a perfect way to keep a really curious mind and constantly be um, evolving and being stimulated by things that were around me, which is very important um, to my artistic process. So I, I went to grad school in that process, I really came to better understand systems of knowledge organization and even just the logistics and the kind of day-to-day -day of managing a, an archive and figuring out, as professional archivists do, you know, how to make things accessible, how to organize things so that people can find them and understand them without the benefit of, you know, temporal context. And uh, it was a really interesting experience, and it wound up being really the right choice for me, I think, all told. Um, and as I'm sure we'll talk about, I did bring a lot of that experience back into artistic projects in, in the years to follow. I don't know that many of us would see perhaps the bureaucracies of archiving and knowledge and systems for information as places where you would go searching for some sort of universal truth. But it seems that that is something that you have landed on and have been doing successfully and really potently for, for quite a while now. So what is it that you're seeing that, that perhaps needs to be teased out in some artistic way? What is, what is this nugget of truth that you're, you're trying to reveal to us in, in, in an artistic format? Yeah, I think it's really interesting that you are speaking about universal truth because I think large public collections, and I tend to be interested in collections, whether that be in a library or archive or um, in digital spaces, like in, on internet platforms that have some accessibility to the public, as opposed to, let's say, like a private art collection or other collections. Um, but I think that these aggregates of intellectual content, whether it be 
libraries, you know, having publications or original items in an archive um, or any number of other things, that there is both universal truth and personal truth. And sometimes they're, they coexist while also being opposite um, in the same moment. And I think there's something really interesting that shows both how impossible it is for um, humans to come together and and have common ground and understand, you know, shared ideas, and then also how easy that is in some ways. Um, but, you know, in that sentence that you read about a line that I sort of tried to articulate about what it is big picture that's relevant for me about record keeping is it's essentially about power. And I think that's something that I try to bring into every project is an acknowledgement that the record that is most accessible is the most powerful. And it's not an equal playing field in terms of who gets to write what, how things are saved, how things are represented in terms of their accessibility. So uh, that is definitely a key component for me in, in this quest. from this world Running on a hamster wheel But searching for something I can't feel I just wanna This feels like the right segue for me, perhaps to move away from like abstract questioning into inviting you to talk about something that is um, a little more concrete. And this this also is my chance to confess my envy at you being an artist in residence uh, with the, the New York Department of um, Records and Information Services. So I would love to hear about how that came about. And then you have a project that is a component of that. And I, I think that might really illustrate a lot of the themes and the intentions that you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So that project um, came out of a residency, as you said, um, that it, as a program, as a residency program is really fascinating. It's called the Public Artists in Residence Program or PAIR. And it was modeled off of the work of a really amazing pioneering artist named Meryl Lauterman Euclid, who um, on just based on her own interest in the late 70s, approached the New York City Department of Sanitation and said, your work and my art practice have a lot in common. I should be your artist in residence. You know, as a compliment to all involved, they understood and it, it, you know, it took a while to set up and, um, but eventually 
Meryl Euclid has been now, she's, she's actually technically still the unpaid artisan residence of the New York City Department of Sanitation 41 plus years later. And it really set the stage for city government in New York City, understanding the value that a situation where uh, artists who are creative problem solvers and city workers and city officials could work together to um, see the issues that are facing New Yorkers in a totally different way than any other configuration could allow those both groups to see. Um, and so she worked with the city, and I know this because I found records in the archive to suggest opening up a program like this to other artists. So this idea of placing artists inside, embedded into city government to be making their work alongside those workers who were public servants to the residents of the city. It took them 30 years. And I know this because I found the first the record of the first meeting about it. And that I know when it actually began in earnest, which was in 2015. Um, so since 2015, there's been artists at the Department of Health, Department of Aging, um, the Commission on Human Rights, um, all sorts of different agencies have welcomed artists deep into their midst, uh, given them resources, access to anything they wanted to see, meetings they wanted to sit on, people they wanted to trail, um, material they wanted to look at. And it's truly an incredible project that um, I very much hope could be replicated in other cities because I think the results are amazing. Um, and I should say, even though Meryl Euclid was unpaid, uh, there's now a very generous budget so that artists can really support themselves as they're doing this work and they can also fund the production of ambitious artworks. Um, and that is a very key piece. I think anywhere else that this is done, you know, living wage and um, an adequate budget needs to be a part of that. That being said, I was placed at the um, Department of Records and Information Services, which is essentially the city government agency that manages the collection, preservation, and access of all of the information that New York City government itself produces. So the collection does not have, um, you know, let's say general ephemera of New York City. That's something you might be able to find at the New York Historical Society or other places. The municipal archives is all records created by city government. So I began that project um, in spring 2019. And I spent the first nine months of being in residence, which meant I had a space to work. I had access to the internal network share drives. And um, I sat in, like I said, on a lot of meetings and I trailed a lot of people. Uh, I spent nine months just researching within the records created by city government the relationship between government and artists over the last century, right? So here I am, an artist within government, and I could feel the friction of that, but also the potential of that. And I was very curious who maybe had come before me besides Meryl Euclid, um, and also 
those who didn't have intimate access to government, but were just living in the city of New York, in what ways did they brush up against government? And in what ways did um, the municipal system support them versus um, challenge them or, you know, present obstacles to living as an artist? And of course, I had, in a contemporary sense, I had done this. I was an artist living in New York. Um, but I understood that the trajectory was, you know, far longer than my lifetime. And I was curious about how it had gone and if I could find um, records that showed how government saw that journey, that history through its own eyes. Don't want to sleep tonight at all. Just want to watch them stars fall But you don't want to try to make up dreams Just to be seen I want to lay here beside you Oh quiet Fire breath and open sky It's not what we know it's where we go I grow wings and tell her goodbye oh, It's not what we see It's what we choose to be Some flowers, high grass and beer feet a tree I think I had a few outformings actually that, that I'd love to touch on but, but public record it struck me as being so clever and intelligent in some ways sort of subversive of bureaucracy by turning all of the tools of bureaucracy back on itself and it became this um, a perpetual repetitive loop because your work became a matter of public record, which was about public record and how it's accessed. And so it's kind of head spinning, but that makes it yeah. all the more, um, I think, both witty and enjoyable and funny and also content rich. So with all that being said, could you just perhaps tell us a little bit more about that specific outforming and, and what it contains and you know some of the rationale that was prompting you to push it in particular directions. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it began in a really simple place, which was that the commission, the, the residency was essentially a commission, which is where an artist is um, asked to produce an original work. And the commission was quite open-ended and simple, but it was just to make a public artwork. And so in doing so and thinking about uh, the prompt, I started thinking about public space. And in New York City, public space often looks like exactly what you picture when you close your eyes and you hear those words. It's there's sidewalks, there's public parks, there's plazas between buildings, there's semi-public spaces like, you know, the subway and these kind of middle ground spaces. But the more time I spent in the archive with this public material, so uh, in case it's not clear, New York City government and, and most government records, especially in the United States, I, I actually shouldn't speak to it on an international scale, but just speaking inter, um, domestically, 
government records by and large are meant to be public for the public's benefit. So I was wading through these just warehouses after warehouses of mostly paper-based records and thinking about how the records themselves, the pieces of paper I was holding were public space. Because maybe not in a physical sense, like that sheet of paper, because for example, the government could maybe digitize that sheet of paper, throw away the original and keep it. But the the conceptual space, uh, if that's not too abstract, the content is public space. It's where we live together because it's a record of the power that has governed us as citizens um, for you know lifetimes before me and lifetimes to come. And so I thought I'd like to install my artwork in this public space. So not in a in a park but here within these records. And so the way to do that, as I understood it, was to make artworks that were also classified as official government records, because by doing so, they would have to live there among that, in that space. So uh, I worked backwards to try to figure out, okay, I need to make an artwork that's, that's going to meet this criteria. How do I do that? So I started by uh, just the very basics. The city has given me money to make something. The city has given me physical resources to do so as well, such as equipment like cameras, computers, lights. Uh, the city has made city workers available to work with me. So I will work with a digital technician whose job it is, is to make images for the city by, for example, photographing old books so that they can be digitized. Um, and then using those pieces of equipment, um, those personnel resources, I began to make photographic images using material like actual records, memos, um, the sheets used to request those memos like that I handed to the archivist to get the box, all of that. And then I made these essentially 11 photographic prints, but I, I didn't wanna leave anything to chance. So I went one step further and I made those prints, they're photographic 30 by 40, um, essentially pieces of official mail. So I, I transferred them, transferred ownership of them to the commissioner of the agency. And I also sent them as digital files. So they had a physical version, they had a digital version. Um, and all of those things were sort of like check boxes that um, meant it was very, very unlikely that these would ever not be considered historical records with significant value. In doing so, the artworks themselves started a little journey through the process, right? So I made them, I sent them on their way, and then um, they are going through what's called the retention process. So they're, they're kept for a while, then they're processed, then they're put in the archive, and then eventually the public can access them. However, that process can be, for both my artwork and for any record created by government, someone can jump the line. And the way to do that is through the Freedom of Information Act. So this might be familiar to some people um, who listen to podcasts or who read articles written by journalists where they've done a Freedom of Information request to get a piece of active but not yet publicly released bit of government work. Um, it's a way that we don't have to wait 30 years or five years or one year, depending on the retention schedule of these records, in order to see them, at which point someone, it may be too late to do anything about it. 
So um, spring 2020, all of the artworks were made, they were transferred, they were classified, and uh, a sort of window opened for the public to request them through the Freedom of Information Law. And in doing so, the city then had to respond and release them into the public sphere um, as essentially high-res digital files. And that moment of release was similar to an opening for a public artwork where the, the blanket gets or the sheet gets pulled off of them in the park and then suddenly everyone can see the sculpture. It was a similar uh, act, but in a very different way. wondering about the virtual space um, so you drew a distinction between and then sort of co-opted uh, our understanding of what public space is because there's this virtual space too where things can live I know you've done various work exploring some of these boundaries or overlaps um, and playing in different different ways we interact with the world and and maybe parbuncles is is a project that lives in that in that space and maybe the project in Miami, View Through, is also a project that lives in in a virtual space that we that is intangible to us, but creates a change in our actual behavior as real people. I'm wondering how you go about playing with our uh, sense of the virtual world as well as our real world. Yeah, I think um, the project Reach or Parbuncles, they're sort of depending on uh, the element of it, can people have referred to it in different ways, um, is a really good example of that because I think we tend to think of our digital lives and our, you know, in real life or physical lives as very separate, but I see things moving seamlessly between them and I am interested in exploring that in my artwork. So Parbuncles was another actual public artwork, so it's of the theme, um, that was very simple. And what it was, was that I put a single word on a single billboard in New York City through a public art uh, nonprofit that facilitated those types of projects. And the word was parbuncles, which is a um, 17th century term, a mariner's term for a type of rope. And it was, I found it in New York Public Library in the rare book room. It was used in print, an English language word. It had just never, um, been used in a digital space, let's say on a website, in a public way that had been indexed by uh, search engines. To put it very simply, if you Googled the word parbuncles, nothing would come up. So I thought that's so interesting that there's a sort of hole in this digital space that if I put the word on a billboard, people might see it and Google it and see the hole. And that could be interesting. 
what happened was uh, people did Google it, they saw the hole, and then they just rushed in to fill the emptiness. So it just went viral. Um, it began with um, people mostly on social media, and then there was a lot of sort of um, conversation around it on forums where there was back and forth. But then it ex it expanded outward in a really interesting way where you know, beyond articles and blogs and um, the kind of typical places that we gather online, um, some sort of entrepreneurial thinkers did some very interesting things. So someone started merchandising the word parbuncles and using digital platforms, began selling things like t-shirts, mugs with the word parbuncles on it to sort of capture this phenomenon. But that's a really good example of how then at my, at my studio, I logged onto, you know, their platform, which was... Um, where they were merchandising it. And I was able to buy t-shirts that then got shipped to my home. And there is a, there is uh, I sort of think about it like a machine. Like it started in the real world, it went through the internet and it came out another tube somewhere as a t-shirt. Or for example, someone squatted a domain, parbuncles.org, put it on eBay um, and then was trying to get $20,000 for the domain and then nobody bid. And then eventually I was able to buy it from him for a hundred dollars. And we had this really interesting conversation. Um, so that, that's an example of how it stayed in the digital realm, but it went through so many different circuitous routes to come out as something totally different um, than the sort of original prompt. I can already feel myself tensing up with this idea of creating something, even, even with the spirit of curiosity to see what happens, and then to see something co-opted. So you use this language around the public records that you created as artworks in New York City, and you said you set them free. And because you knew that they would turn into something, be matters of public record, and so on and so forth, but you set them free. In this instance, you opened up a portal or, or you shone a light on this void in Google around the word parbuncles. But then it was less that it was co-opted as much as it was just grabbed from you and then torn asunder into so many different pieces by people yes. interacting with it. How do you respond when you push your artwork into a public space and then you lose control of it? It's so interesting because I think that was one of the first times where, although I have sort of always used this process in my practice of kind of pushing an artwork out into the world and then grabbing it back once it's kind of gathered the detritus of the world, and then I can exhibit it often in a state where it shows the material history of having been out in the world. So an example of this is I wrote a, a book and, um, but that as an artwork, because I wanted to sort of put the book out there, you know, publish this work, have it be out there in the world, wait for libraries to purchase it, wait for people to read it in libraries and touch it and rip it and annotate it and then have libraries discard it. And for me to find that discarded book and pull it back and put it in a gallery. So that's a good example of how um, I've always sort of done this process. But with the Parbuncles project, it was for sure the first time where it was so big and so out of control that I was very anxious. I mean, you talk about tensing up just thinking about it. Um, I love everything about the project today, even when it 
when when the public dragged it to places that were quite dark and weird. But to be fully honest, my husband likes to remind me that when that project was happening and when it was in at the peak of its viral phenomenon um, moment, I cried every day. I just was so overwhelmed with um, realizing that it was getting so big that I would never be able to pull it back. And also, if I didn't want to pull it back and show it like I was describing in a gallery or, or attaching my name to it, there was no going back. It was so associated with me and it was so far reaching that um, there was no choice. This wasn't, this wasn't an artistic experiment that I could sort of leave in the dust. It's, it was there. Um, but ultimately, when it kind of lived through its viral life cycle, because these things don't last very long, people move on to the next thing, the results were super fascinating. I mean, to a, a, a point where I could never have made something so revealing and so interesting and so diverse in terms of its manifestations on my own without relinquishing that control. And I think that ultimately that was the right choice because it's it spoke to the things I was interested in a far better, bigger, uh, more complex way than I ever could have as an individual person. seems in some ways as if perhaps you have chosen to embrace massive scale as part of your artistic exploration. I don't know if that's true or fair to say, so I'm, I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind talking about that El Paquete Seminar project a little, and if that actually is becoming a part of your, um, you know, your widening of practice. Yeah, I think it's a great example. And I, you know, in this most recent, most ambitious project that we began our conversation around public record, in the end, I did the math and I had only reviewed one-tenth of one percent of the entire archive at the end of a year. So if I had spent another thousand years there, I could just have gotten to the point of reviewing everything that was currently um, recorded when I was in residence. So yeah, I think I, I think projects like El Piquete Seminal, which I can describe, helped get me to a point where I was quite comfortable working at that scale and I understood the potential. So I was interested in doing it. Um, so the Paquete, as it's known, is a 
really interesting Cuban cultural phenomenon. There's no other way to say it. Um, I want to say right off the bat that I, the, every work, every bit of work I've done in this area was in collaboration with another artist named Nestor Cide, who is based in Havana. Um, so the Paquete is a collection of a huge amount of digital material, one terabyte that's aggregated every week, mostly in Havana, although there's one other city, um, Bayamo in, in Cuba, where uh, material is also aggregated for this collection. And it's circulated by hand through a very complex distribution system. So a lot of people like to say the reason that the Paquete exists is there's very limited internet in Cuba. Um, less so now, since I began the project, actually internet access has increased. But um, in 2016, when Nestor and I began, there was essentially no accessible internet in Cuba. It's about a 30% internet penetration rate. Cubans would need to go to a public park to access, you know, like bring a laptop to a park bench in order to get online. And then even then the connection was very expensive, very slow, it was censored. So the paquete, it's, it's very easy for people on the outside to say, oh, well, you know, it's hard to access things online. So the people who do have access to the internet download a lot of digital content, package it, and then people copy it person to person without using an internet connection. And to a certain extent, that's true. But I'm always very careful to place it in a larger historical context because after the Cuban revolution, so many other forms of media began circulating in this way. So beginning in the 60s and the 70s, paperback novels, magazines, um, as a result of highly controlled um, state intervention in these uh, formats, public citizens would share person-to-person -person, um, material of all different formats. So as I said, beginning with publishing, but then to CDs, DVDs, VHS, Betacam, um, all through the different migrations. And so there's a culture in Cuba of... Uh, physically circulating intellectual and entertainment materials. And the Picadesa Manal, it's digital, so it's it's a bit higher tech and it does have a relationship to the internet, but it's essentially an outgrowth of that um, multi-decade history. So the thing about the paquete is it's so fascinating. It shows in a way that very little else can what an entire country of people is consuming in terms of uh, cultural material uh, on a daily, weekly basis. But it's very ephemeral. Because a terabyte of data, as you know, anyone listening might um, be able to imagine, is you know it's far more than all the photos you've ever taken in your life. It's 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 we're we're getting to a point where you know the quality of digital material and stuff is proliferating and such that it's becoming more familiar. But I mean, it's thousands of hours of content. It's millions of files. Um, potentially, depending on the size, uh, and so each week this content that was being aggregated and shared uh, in a gray market environment was then being deleted the next week and replaced with fresh material. But Nestor and I believe that there was a lot of value in understanding on in a given moment what an entire country of people were exchanging physically between themselves as a result of limitations elsewhere in their information lives. So we set out to create an archive of one year, 52 terabyte archive of this material. And we did so by uh, working in collaboration with one of the aggregators in Havana. What, there's basically two main studios that aggregate. We worked with one of them. We traveled to every city in Cuba. We met with um, every distributor on the network for that one studio. And we went through many, many 
layers of gymnastics to try to make this possible um, just on a technical level because of all sorts of geopolitical factors on both the U.S. and the Cuban side around the importation of and exportation of technology, equipment. The U.S. embargo is still in full force, but when we began the project, um, it was before diplomatic relations normalized between our countries. So I was actually on the third ever Delta flight to Havana uh, since 1959, uh, when in you know early days of the project. So um, yes, it is definitely a good example of working at a really, really large scale and also working in a space where I'm interested in exploring the material that people share as a as a record of where they were in a moment and what the conversation was around um, a community or you know a cultural uh, a cultural period. And so then, how have you converted this fifty two plus terabytes of material into an artifact or a form? that can be consumed or seen or interacted with by people that aren't a part of this cultural phenomenon? Yeah, it's a great question. It's something that we were very sensitive to because there was so much, um, there were so many limitations in our ability to move this material around, partially because it's a hundred, not, I shouldn't say a hundred percent, maybe 80% pirated material. So, you know, going around and below and above copyright law that we wanted to make sure if we were, uh, we wanted to share it outside of Cuba because we think that there's great value in it, but we wanted to make sure that it, again, carried that detritus with it of, of what it really was as a thing in the world. So when we've exhibited it, which we've done uh, in the US in Europe and in Asia, we um, explored the local context for copyright and other forms of regulation around the material. And we built it into the installation. So for example, in in a US museum, uh, when we've showed this piece, it was played on a computer that had a special operating system that we built so that anything you looked at through this very sculptural kind of archive that we built uh, would only show you 65% of whatever it was on. Uh, so if it was a video, it you know it cut at sixty five percent of the total running time, for example, and that's because we could use fair use copyright uh, flexibility if we didn't show one hundred percent of the material, and it, we could argue it was for educational purposes, cultural purposes, because it was in a museum. At the same time, we commissioned an ad agency in in Cuba, and ads promotional material only exist because of the Paquete Semanal, because um, as a nationalized economy, there is no space for advertising on state TV and radio. So the Paquete really created a space for advertising. So we commissioned an agency to create uh, what we call infomercial, which is an explanatory video, an ad for the Paquete Semanal, introducing it to an international audience who has no idea any of the things that I just told you about the history of media circulation and, and even just what is this thing? Why does it matter? So we, we've done a lot to try to introduce and contextualize the work um, while also reflecting back to a viewer where they are when they see it. You know, I'm in the United States looking at this. What does that mean? There's a multi-decade embargo between the country I'm in and the country where this is from. Um, and we shared video and other um, ephemera and documentation around what that embargo meant for how we had to do uh, as I said before, all sorts of crazy workarounds um, 
to be able to produce the thing that they're experiencing. the phrase there about reflecting back this material to the people that were participating in in the experience i want to invite you to reflect your own work back on yourself i'm inviting you to do that because i'd like to ask if how you relate to the world how you see the world has changed over maybe the last decade or so that you've been doing this kind of sort of digging in to this theme around um, records and knowledge and the systems that maintain those. Yeah, it's interesting because I've started a new project um, that I'm working on right now, all about what is, this is gonna sound so simple and basic, but essentially what is art and who are artists? And I guess to a certain extent, I began this with my research with the city, you know, how does the government see artists? But I think it's coming from a place of looking at my own practice and my own life and realizing that it's very different than many of the artists in my community. Just the way that I work, um, the, the pro- my day-to-day as an artist, um, as opposed to the day-to-day of, let's say, the artist in the studio right next to me, who is a painter, um, are so different. And I think that um, the way that I, it's reflecting myself is now looking at kind of if this is the artwork I need to make to understand the world, what potentials are there for others like me who are artists, but in maybe a non-traditional sense. And I wish that when I was, um, you know, earlier in my educational path and my career, you know, early college, I actually didn't, I started out not even going to an art school. I transferred to an art school. I just wish I had more examples of um, artists who work like me in, in ways that a lot of times don't even look like like artwork, um, but they use uh, visual art as a methodology and a vehicle for, like you said, sharing a worldview. And I, um, yeah, so I guess my interest now is to better understand my somewhat non-traditional process so that hopefully if I can get better at explaining it and and explaining the artistry of it, that maybe it the world um, and, you know, can see a broader definition of who artists are and how they work. So glad that you said that because one of the questions I had in mind before we started, and I'm going to make it 
my last question in that case for you. Your bio references you as Julia Wiest, visual artist. And the more I looked at your work, the more it seemed to me that um, there was a hugely performative element to this and a, and a, and a really vital interactive component to this as well. And so on the one hand, I was really resistant to this idea of categorizing you and, I, and, and no one really wants to be labeled anyway. And yet your field too is very much about exploring catalogs and how we do index things too. So it got me wondering, like, that's the description that we use, but how do you define yourself? Yeah, I think the reason that I use the term visual artist is that when I see artwork, and I use that maybe in this case in a very broad sense, the content that speaks loudest in the deepest parts of my soul are the visual artworks. When I see work like that, I think those are my people and that's the language that I speak. Even though often when I do speak that language, it comes out in a way that maybe seems like a mistranslation. <laughs> um, it's, I guess it's just intuitive. I mean, I actually have been asking, because I'm fortunate to be in my daily life around a lot of other artists, and I have been asking people just really basic questions like, you know, who is an artist and who is not and things like this that, you know, maybe seem almost amateur or naive, um, cliche even. But I think, um, I think it can be really revealing for the role we think that art plays in our lives, both as artists and not as artists, you know, um, and why we do this thing that we do. My guest today has been the visual artist, Julia Wiest. Julia, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Wonderful conversation. That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at Lives Radio Show. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives Radio Show and Podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more. Thank you.